Heavenly Father, as we think about, as we hear, as we internalize Lamentations 1, Lord, may we rightly understand distress. May our worship of you not simply be a proclamation that all is well because you are God, but may it be textured in the joys as well as the sorrows of life. May we see that you are God and that you hold all things in your hands. This we pray, Lord, in the name of our Redeemer. Amen. As we begin to look at Lamentations, as we've read just now through the first chapter, we recognize that it's a rather unpleasant account of life. Israelite culture is destroyed. And as we kind of mull over uh, those developments in our own mind, it, it's, it's interesting to think of our own culture. And a, and a diagnostic question we could use to highlight this would just be to, to ask, is America a Christian nation? You know, I, I, I'm not trying to enter into a, a serious debate of, on that topic this morning. Um, usually when, when it's posed and when Christians talk about it, they, there's a significant amount of disagreement, and most of that is born out of people just talking past each other. On the one hand... You know, people would, would look at the founding of the colonies, the very high degree to which Christianity played a, a, an, an integral part of the shaping of, of culture, the shaping of, of rules, of, of law, and they would say, yes, of course, the United States is a Christian nation. But others would, would simply look at the world and say, well, I guess to be a Christian nation, you would expect some high percentage or a majority to, to be actively Christian, and they would say, well, of course not. We see the, the sin and destruction, we see chaos and unbelief everywhere, and we'd say, no, it's not a Christian nation. As we think about this, I think we can see that both of those statements are, are true. So again, it's not a, a, a serious discussion on whether America is a Christian nation or not, but, but rather it is a, a recognition that American culture today is different than what it would have been like at the founding of the colonies so many years ago. And to be clear, this isn't to say that we should return to 1950. That might have been great. I don't know. I wasn't alive. But rather, what I'm trying to, to communicate is that American culture isn't just the, the, the product of a few folks who made their way from Europe to establish a new world, but rather it is part of an ongoing process of the development of society in the Western world for millennia. And it's founded on the truths of the scriptures. As we then think about culture more recently, as it has departed from that, we see that it is, by and large, confused and in turmoil. And as we think about the scriptures, as we think about the, the way in which the Lord responds to this, sort of turning away from Him, I, actually, I think of Romans 1. 
right there the Lord uh, says through Paul that, that evidence of God is abundant, but sinful man has rejected it. And so the Lord gave them over to their passions. We can think of it more humorously, looking at the Nowling family and an anecdote of discipline some 40 years ago. Once when my brother was very young, he wanted to go play outside. And my dad said, no, you can't go outside and play, it's raining. And my brother, being three or four, said, no it's not. So my dad said, Sean, come here, come over to the window, let's, let's take a look outside. See the rain coming down? No. You see the puddles? You see the little sprinkles in the puddle, the little, the little pools, the little rings? No, it's not raining. Okay, go play. And Sean went outside for a few seconds, and then he looked at my dad. He said, it's raining. And my dad said, yeah, yeah you know, and, and come on back in. But you, you get this notion that, that in rejecting the Lord, the Lord often hands the culture over to its own devices. Lamentations 1 shows the fruit of that action. You see, Israel and Judah for, for, for centuries had longed, had lusted after the nations around it. It wanted to be like them. And the Lord handed them over to their desire. And in the process, all of society is turned on its head. The culture is destroyed. What then should our response be as we see our culture untethered from its moorings, as it devolves into the rejection of the Lord? Well, I, I would suggest that there are two responses. For those who do not know the Lord, who, who, who do not call upon the name of Christ, recognize that Lamentations 1 serves as a witness of what happens as a consequence when the Lord does hand a culture over. And so repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. For those who don't know, or for those who do know the Lord, who, who, who trust in Him already, recognize again that Lamentations 1 is a picture of the consequence of a culture that denies the Lord. And so, in love, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we as God's people need to warn of impending disaster, but we also need to remain steadfast and movable, looking to the Lord Jesus who will deliver us through such a time of chaos. Now, as you were, were listening to, to Lamentations 1, you know, I, I've called it a kind of a complete annihilation of the culture or a complete turnover of the culture. And you, and you might say, really? I mean, it's unpleasant. We, we get that. We see that there's, there's, you know, the young people have been carried off. We, we see that the, the mighty people have, have all fled or been killed. We see that, that there's hunger and famine, but... but can we really say that all of culture is lost in Lamentations? And, and here it's one where it's important to note that the author employs an acrostic in Hebrew which doesn't get translated into English. Uh, and that is to say, there's a reason why Lamentations 1 and 2 and 4 all have 22 verses. 
they are acrostics. Each, you know, the first verse starts with the, the letter A. Actually, it's the letter Aleph. And, and the second verse starts with the, the letter B um, or, or bait. Uh, and it goes on through the alphabet. In essence, it's like the author is saying, this misery I'm describing, it's from Aleph to Tav or A to Z. It's complete. I mean, we see this in, in other parts of the scriptures, like Psalm 119, right, where the, 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 the psalmist there is doing the same sort of thing with groups of verses, and there he's saying from A to Z, the word of God is amazing, and it's wonderful. Here, he's saying from A to Z, there's destruction and chaos. Well, what shape did it take? How, do, how did it come about? What we see in Lamentations 1 is that there are a series of reversals. You know, Israel, which was great, or Judah, which was a princess among the nations, now becomes a forced laborer, right? Where it had greatness before, it now is lost. And what we see is that these follow Judah's pattern of wanting to be like the nations surrounding it. And I'll give a couple examples. We could think of, of in the days of Samuel, right, when Israel said, we want a king like the nations around us. And, and the Lord says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me, the Lord, right? You know, that, that is a common theme throughout Israel's history. We see also that you know, when Israel fails to drive out the Canaanites from the land, they end up adopting the worship practices of the pagan people around them. One kind of humorous example of this is with the judge Gideon. You know, the first task that Gideon is given is to destroy an idol. The idol is in his dad's backyard. Right? So it's not like he had to destroy an idol like go over there to the foreign nation who doesn't believe in me and destroy that idol. Rather, it's the idol that's in his house. It's out back that his family members would have worshipped at. Right? Israel forever is wanting either through its legislation, through its, its civic structures, or, or through its worship, wanting to be like the nations around it. And here in Lamentations 1... The Lord hands them over to the those sorts of desires. Now, under Babylonian captivity, they're ruled by the nations they so longed to be like. They're now free to worship every god in the pantheon. But they've been cut off from the corporate temple worship in Jerusalem. Right? The Lord, looking at this continued idolatry in the land, this continued desire to be like the nations in the land gave them over. He destroys the land for his glory. Now as we think about this, and as we think about the destruction that, that goes on, we need to recognize that there are still believers who are worshiping the Lord. Uh, Daniel's one of them, and in the book of Daniel we see that even in exile, right, he continues to worship. So Lamentations is a book that doesn't talk about how the Lord has cut people off from him, right, so that they are not able to worship him, but rather it's a book where the Lord pronounces judgment upon a wicked culture. And in the midst of this, 
as the lamenter reflects on this destruction of the land, he cries out to the Lord. And he does so um, in, in a couple of different ways. You know, he starts in talking in, in the third person about the city and all the things that have happened to the city. But then as the, the lament goes on, we see that he switches to talking as though he is the city, talking about, you know, in first person, to, to just drive home the deep, desperate struggle he feels. He's calling out that Israel has been destroyed and it has no sense of self as a nation. I mean, you, you look at verse 1. You know, the city that was full of people now is cut off, right? It's like a widow. Uh, the nation that was a princess is now a forced laborer, right? The children have gone. Any future hope of greatness has been carried off into Babylon. Daniel would have been among that number, right? The, the princes of the city flee like a deer, but it's a deer that has no pasture, so no strength, no ability to escape, no ability to run. And, and you see that the people then are wrapped up and destroyed. There's physical hardship. Verse 11 shows us that the people are groaning for bread and they're selling everything they have to buy a little bit of bread in an effort to feed themselves and, and restore themselves. But it's failing. And there is a complete lack of help from anyone. Here again, the, 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 again and again, the, the lamenter calls to, to nations to, to help. Help me. Don't you see the... the the distress I'm in, but nation after nation refuses. All of those people that Israel and Judah sought to copy, to, 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 to come alongside and say, really, we're similar to you, in the hopes that they could be friends, now in Israel's distress, they're no help. Right? And as we think about this, I think there's an, an obvious parallel to our own society. I think there's an obvious parallel not just to our own society, which is in chaos, but the church within the wider chaotic society. We see that there is often a temptation for society, or for the church to look like society. Let me explain what I mean by this. And, and I'll... I'll date myself to 1990s youth groups. But when I was a, a young man in um, youth group, the, the prevailing idea was, listen, there are all sorts of things that kids can do uh, for fun, for friendship, for, for, you know, hanging around. And if you know anything about young men, it's usually no good, um, the things that they get up to. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to develop um, a, a curriculum for uh, Christian education that is as fun and exciting as the wider culture. So if you want to sum up 1990s Christian ministry to kids, it's usually summed up best by the word extreme. Everything was just extreme because that's what the culture seemed to, to prize. And so what ends up happening is that the youth group begins to look a little bit like the culture. And the idea is that, that people in the culture will say, well, 
hey, these people are having fun, and, and why don't I go over there? And, and the church says, maybe they'll hear about Jesus, and that's wonderful. But too often, what ends up happening is that the youth group looks more and more like the culture, right? The youth group takes on more and more of the characteristics of the culture, not just in some sort of superficial outward appearance, but in the way it thinks and the way it acts. And so in an effort to be appealing to the nations, if you will, the church becomes like the nations. We see this on a wider scale within churches. Um, you, you, you see church architecture, right, that, that doesn't, remember, doesn't call to, to mind cathedrals of worship that have been known for, for hundreds of years. Not saying that that is the only church architecture that's acceptable. But, it, but not that. You see that oftentimes church buildings look more like shopping malls with, uh, you know, kind of movie theaters almost attached to the side where people can come and worship, and, and Starbucks in the lobby. And I'm not saying that we can't have coffee, and I'm not saying that that, that is sinful. What I am saying is that we need to be on guard as a church to see whether we are influencing the culture or the culture is influencing us. Because in this, Lamentations insofar as it shows how the Lord has handed the fallen, broken culture of the day over to the nations. So too it serves as a warning as we think about church culture here. As it departs from the Lord, it looks more and more like the nations into which it, it resides. And it is of no value. And as we think then about this, as we think about the way in which the Lord has handed over this culture, this culture which has repeatedly denied the Lord, we see the way in which the, the Lord's wrath is poured out. And it's interesting as we see this picture in Lamentations 1, the way in which the, the lamenter, who I think is Jeremiah, ascribes blame for the predicament. And I use the word here, blame, intentionally. I kind of mean it as a synonym for responsibility. So look with me at verses, chapter 1, verses 5, and then we're going to jump to 14 through 15. I mean, we could pick several from, it, from the chapter, but this just gives us a good picture of how the, the author is, is ascribing, as I said, blame. Her adversaries, and that's Jerusalem's, her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. And then skipping down, the yoke of my, and this is, we switch to first person, the yoke of my, Jerusalem's transgressions is bound. By his, the Lord's hand, they have knit together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hand of those against whom I am not able to stand. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. So on the one hand, from the outset, this book makes clear that, that it's the Lord who's bringing this about. Right? That it's the Lord who's 
responsible for this, and, and I, I say that somewhat haltingly on purpose, because at the same time that the lamenter is saying the Lord is the one who's bringing this about, he shows that it only is brought about because of the sins of the people. And so the lamenter rightly understands, we have no complaint. We can't say, Lord, how dare you? Because we've sinned. We, we can't say, Lord, you shouldn't have done it this way. Because the people are unrighteous. We see here that the, the Lord is bringing about his wrath upon the people for their sin. And the lamenter is perfectly clear about this. It comes from the Lord. It's not from Babylon or anywhere else. It comes from the Lord, but it is their responsibility because of their sin. Curiously, though, the, Lord, er, the, the lamenter does connect the actions of the Lord with the inaction of the other people. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. There, you know, speaking of the other nations, it says, They have heard that I, and again, that's Jerusalem, groan. There is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my calamity. They are glad that you, the Lord, have done it, that is, this destruction. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed, that, you, that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me for all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. So here, you know, the, the lamenter is using this first person language for the city, right? He's not talking about his own sin, but the sins of, of Jerusalem uh, that have resulted in the city being destroyed. But he's also looking to the, the, these other nations around and he's saying, Lord, were that they were like me, were that they were destroyed just like me. This sort of language is an imprecatory declaration. Or a, you know, sometimes in the, in the Bible we hear imprecatory psalms or, or language like this. It just means that you're, you're calling down a curse upon someone. And I'll confess that sounds somewhat foreign to our 21st century ears. It makes us a little uncomfortable. And there's a reason for that, and, and it's not a bad one. Um, we live in a time of unparalleled prosperity. We live in a place of unparalleled security. And the idea of calling down a curse on someone in my day-to-day -day life seems a little strange. If I'm in line, right, at the coffee shop, I can't imagine what the person in front of me might do to me to warrant me calling upon their destruction. It's conceivable, but it's odd, right? Um, but the lamenter here is recognizing that things aren't right. He's recognizing, right, that this destruction of the city and, and its effects on the citizens, it's not right. I mean, he understands that it's the result of sinfulness, but at the same time, he recognizes that these other nations have done the same sorts of things that Israel has done, the same sorts of things that Jerusalem has done. And so he's saying, Lord, we've done wrong and we're in distress. But they've done wrong too. It's an understanding 
that there is brokenness within the world and that it is not right. And so as the, the, the lamenter is saying, Lord, let it be done to them too, it's a recognition that the justice of God needs to prevail. As we read in Psalm 139, we see another example of this. And it's actually, it's an example that, that contextually um, links with Lamentations 1 in two ways. The first is, as I said already, it, it's, it takes place in Babylon, right? It's a, it's a song that was sung in captivity. We also see at the end difficult language but here the psalmist is speaking about those that have worked against Israel and he says how blessed will be the ones who seize and dash your little ones against the rock meaning that their little ones have been seized and dashed against the rock Again, we look to Daniel. We look to his friends, right? Who, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, among the other captives. The, the, this um, destruction that we see in Jerusalem results in whole groups of people being carted off to Babylon. And Psalm 137 is a recognition that that is not right. And it's, it's a, a call for a hope that that be restored. And the language is severe, that they would be dashed upon the rock. Part of the reason why that is so difficult for us, again, is our time and place in history. It's not popular or comfortable to say such things. But we also, again, with the lamenter, with the, the, the author of Psalm 137, recognize that what we see in this world is not right. Amen. And so we do pray that the enemies of God are dashed upon the rock. But I don't just mean any rock. I mean the, the rock, right? The, the rock that Moses struck with his staff from which water poured forth right? The, the, the rock of ages, we might say, cleft for me. The rock that hears our prayers and redeems us from sin and death. In short, we pray that our enemies fall upon Christ. Because upon Christ, all of the wrath of God has been poured out. So as my enemies fall upon Christ and are broken against that rock, they become my friend. This also provides a corrective as our church is tempted to become like the wider culture. And we might say how or, or what would that look like? And, and as I said before, when, when our church efforts, when, when our missional strategy is to, to be acceptable to our, our wider culture, we begin to look like our wider culture. Really, if we're earnest here, what we need to be doing is bringing our wider culture and those which are hostile to the gospel to the Lord Jesus. Because when they come to the rock, when they fall upon him, they're no longer hostile to him. They become our brothers and sisters. 
So then as we seek to make peace with the culture, we do so in the shadow of the cross, bringing the culture to Christ, rather than seeking to overly accommodate ourselves to the culture and get lost in meaninglessness. Now, as we reflect upon Judah and Israel and its attempts to to emulate the nations around it, as we've kind of also looked at our own uh, temptation as a church to, to emulate our wider culture, we have to then ask, what about the individuals? What about Daniel, right? The scriptures do not have an indi- they don't give us an indication that he was a heathen in Jerusalem, and then when he came to Babylon, suddenly he said, boy, I ought to repent and follow the Lord. Rather, what we see in Daniel is that from his youth, he followed the Lord. And we have every indication that when he lived in Jerusalem, he was righteous by the grace of God. What are we to do with individuals like that who are caught up in the Lord's outpouring of judgment? You know, as we think about this, we, we might even think about Abraham as he goes to the Lord right before the Lord pronounces judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And, and Lord, will you destroy the city if, if there are this many you know, you know, righteous people living in it? And he, and he whittles it down. And, and the, the point of that is clear. The Lord doesn't want any of his people to perish. And so as we consider lamentations, we, we wonder, Lord, how could you allow your people to suffer? As we think about our own culture, as we think about its slide into chaos, and we wonder, well, what will happen to faithful churches? What will happen to faithful individuals? Will they experience the same sort of destruction? As we think about that, we remember that that the same spirit who moved in Daniel, the same spirit who enabled God's people to, to follow him by faith in the Old Testament is the same spirit who speaks through his servants in the new and speaks down through the ages. And it means that, that God's people can make some rather radical statements. Consider Paul. In his situation, uh, he describes it as afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and carrying about in his body the dying of Jesus. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But that's not all. That's not even near all, right? He, he says that he's afflicted but not crushed. He's perplexed but not despairing. He's persecuted but not forsaken. He's struck down but he's not destroyed. And we wonder about that and we say, how in the world is he able to do that? Well, we keep reading and so, you know, in 2 Corinthians, um, starting in the end of verse 13 and then kind of reading some of the verses that follow, it says this, We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he, that's, that's the Lord, who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So Paul is not a stranger to this sort of affliction. He he understands what it means that the, the Lord pours out his wrath. 
against a culture. He understands what it means to be caught up in a sinful culture and to be quite unpopular for proclaiming the truth. But he does so remembering that he will be raised with Christ. And so he looks at his affliction as momentary and light, even though in it it's never momentary, so it seems, and it never seems light. He can say that because he can look to the Lord Jesus. As we think about our own situation, as we think about uh, a culture which is cast off any meaningful mooring to, to historic Christianity, as, as we see the way in which our, our culture has rejected the Lord, as we then wonder if the Lord is going to hand us over as a culture in the way that he handed Jerusalem, we recognize that we may well be in a position to say something similar about the loss of our land or culture that the lamenter could say of Jerusalem. How are we to be sustained? We look to the Lord Jesus who entered into that affliction, every ounce of that affliction, as the wrath of God was poured out on him. And as he was raised, so too by faith we are raised with him. So as our culture may well be crushed by the weight of rolling waters, I started this with, with two points of application, and I end with much the same. For those who don't know the Lord, recognize that Lamentations 1 is a picture of a culture handed over to destruction. Repent and believe. Because only in Christ are you saved from that. Only in that great exchange where he takes on your sin and you receive his righteousness can you live. And for those who are the Lord's already, Lamentations 1 is much the same. Trust then in Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, speak in loving warning to those who reject the Lord. And remain steadfast always as the waves of culture toss to and fro as you look to the resurrected Christ and the eternal weight of glory that he has accomplished. Amen.